organized. As one husband said, uh, when my wife was reading to me the third entry from her list of resolutions, the grim reality struck. They were resolutions for me. <laughs> well, several days into the new year, I recalled a verse that is really important to me. This is not a New Year's resolution, but it's a great verse. And it reads like this. But none of these things move me, nor do I count my life dear to myself, so that I may finish my race with joy and the ministry which I receive from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. This is Acts 20, for the year 2024. Now, this verse is not just for Bible teachers or pastors or missionaries. This verse is for every child of God. And I love this verse. I love the joy that it brings because I can finish my race with joy, the race that the Lord Jesus has for me. And I can testify to the gospel of the grace of God. So just as every person is unique, God has assigned to you your own unique ministry. Your ministry is different than mine. None, wants, none is better, none is less. But we can all testify to the gospel of the grace of God in our homes and in our schools and in our workplaces and in the church and in our neighborhood and in our community. So, Acts 20.24 can be your verse as well for 2024. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for the opportunity to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. And my prayer is, Father, that hearts would be open to this gospel. Thank you so much for the opportunity we have tonight as women to open up your word and to see, Father, the miracles of the Lord Jesus and how they can impact our lives as well. So I pray, Father, that you would undertake for me through the power of your spirit, realizing this is not my message, Father. This is your message. And may all be said to the glory of Christ. In whose name I pray, amen. Well, today, tonight, we continue with the series on the heart of conversation with a conversation of miracles. And think about an impossible situation you may be facing today. And maybe some of you are not in that situation, but many are. It could be an impossible situation with your marriage, or it could be an impossible situation with your finances, or your job, or your health, uh, whatever it may be. And you've run out of options. It's humanly impossible to change the situation you find yourself in. It's impossible to find the change that's needed. And that's why I'm excited to share with you this message tonight on the message of Messiah Jesus and his miracles. For in tonight's message, through Jesus Christ's miracles and the word of God, you will see what only Jesus Christ can do. You will see God's power at work. So to get to the locations of the miracles that I'm going to share with you this evening, we're going to leave the city of Capernaum. Uh, that's Jesus' adopted hometown. We're going to get on a boat, and we're going to cross the Sea of Galilee. And I hope you brought your raincoat with you, because you never know what's going to happen on the Sea of Galilee. Storms can come up at any moment. And when we get across the Sea of Galilee, we're going to land on the other side of the Sea of Galilee. We're going to be on the eastern shore. And we're going to stop right there, drop anchor at the city of Hippos, and see 
what uh, the Lord Jesus will show us in that location. So to read about all of this, I want you to open up your Bibles to this scripture reference. I'm asking you to turn to Mark 4, and I'm going to read verses 35 through chapter 520. And I'm reading from the Tree of Life version of the Bible tonight. It's a more Jewish-friendly voice to it. And when you hear me use the term Yeshua, know that that's the Hebrew word for Jesus, and it means he saves. And when you hear me use the word El Elyon, that is the phrase for God Most High. And then when I use the word Adonai, it means Lord. So this is how it reads in the Tree of Life version, and you open up your Bibles to your version. And again, here we start in verse 35. Now on that same day in the evening, he says to them, let's cross over to the other side. After leaving the crowd, they take him along in the boat, just as he was, and other boats were with him. A great windstorm arises, and the waves are rushing into the boat. The boat was beginning to fill up. But Yeshua was in the back of the boat, sleeping on a pillow. They wake him up and say to him, Teacher, don't you care that we are perishing? So he woke up and rebuked the wind. And he said to the sea, Quiet, be still. Then the wind stopped, and it became totally calm. And he said to them, Why are you afraid? Even now you have no faith? They were struck with awe and said to one another, who is this? Even the wind and the sea obey him. They came to the other side of the sea into the city of the Gerizines, and as soon as Yeshua got out of the boat, a man from the graveyard with an unclean spirit met him. He lived among the tombs, and no one could restrain him anymore, even with a chain. For he had often been bound with shackles and chains, but the chains had been ripped apart by him and the shackles broken. No one was strong enough to tame him. And through it all, night and day, at the graveyard and in the mountains, he kept screaming and gashing himself with stones. When he saw Yeshua from a distance, he ran and bowed down before him. And crying out with a loud voice, he said, What's between you and me, Yeshua, Bel, El, Eliam? I'm warning you in the name of God, do not torment me. For Yeshua had said to him, Come out of the man, you unclean spirit. And then Yeshua began questioning him. What is your name? And he answered, My name is Legion, for we are many. He kept begging him not to send them out of the country. Now a large herd of pigs was feeding on the hillside nearby, and the unclean spirits urged him, saying, Send us to the pigs so we may enter them. So Yeshua gave them permission. The unclean spirits came out and entered the pigs, and the herd, about 2,000 in number, rushed down the cliff and were drowned in the sea. The herdsmen ran away and told the town and countryside, and they came to see what had happened. Now they came to Yeshua and saw the madman who had the legion. He was sitting there, dressed in clothes and in his right mind. The people were scared. Those who had seen it described in detail what had happened to the man, plagued by a demon, and they also told about the pigs. And they began to beg Yeshua to leave their country. As he was getting into the boat, the man who had been infested with demons kept begging him to remain with him. Yeshua did not let him, but he told him, Go home to your friends and tell them how much Adonai has done for you, how he showed mercy to you. So he went away and began to proclaim in the Decapolis how much Yeshua had done for him. And all were amazed. You know, I have been asked the question, what's your favorite memory of the time that you spent in Israel? And after seven months of thinking about that, I have the answer. And here it is. It's the Galilee. 
where the Lord Jesus spent 60 to 70% of his ministry. And that's what I see most clearly when I think of my time in Israel. I know the Lord Jesus just a little bit better because I know where he came from. I know the streets and the areas in which he walked because I walked there too. And by spending most of his time in the northern Galilee, uh, the Lord Jesus' miracles traveled by word of mouth throughout the whole world. In fact, he became an international celebrity. And by the second year of his ministry, his fame had spread so far that he was referred to as the Jesus. He was surrounded by immense crowds of people. However, their major concern was not to hear spiritual truth, but to see Jesus do a miracle. But the Lord Jesus never performed a miracle to show off. He did not seek gain for himself. Instead, his miracles did have a purpose beyond the healing and the feeding and the causing the blind to see, and that was very important to him. But his miracles had this intended purpose. He was presenting himself to Israel as their Messiah, their promised king. And the miracles that he did authenticated his position and his message. Now the word miracles in the Greek means dunamis, which is God's power within him. Now the pages of the Gospels are filled with miracles. And so you could wrongly conclude that the whole entire Bible is filled with miracles. But actually, miracles in the Bible are rare. They are the exception rather than the rule. When you think about miracles in the Bible, you usually think of Moses parting the Red Sea. You could think of Elijah calling down fire from heaven. Uh, you think of the Lord Jesus walking on the water. And then you can also think of Jesus healing blind Bartimaeus. These are extraordinary events that have a divine intervention in human or natural affairs. But what made Jesus' miracles different than these other miracles in the Bible? It was no longer God enabling others to do miracles on his behalf, but it was God himself doing the miracles in the person of Messiah, Jesus Christ. Now, which of Jesus' 42 miracles that are recorded in Scripture should I speak on tonight? Well, I could speak on his first miracle, which was done at a wedding feast in the city of Cana, which is about 20 miles from Capernaum. This was a rather private miracle. Just a few people were there and witnessed it. Uh, the disciples were there, and also some servants, and Jesus' mother Mary was there. It was an incredible miracle. He, he changed water into wine. And it was the quality of the wine that was the most important. He saved the best wine for last. Previously, it had been six pots of water. And by the miracle, he changed that water into wine. And the disciples believed on him right there. They were just amazed by it. Now, I have heard some say that when Jesus was a boy, he performed miracles that when he played with other boys, they would make these clay pigeons, and then Jesus would just touch them, and they would fly away. How do I know that that is not true? <laughs> because in the scriptures, it says very clearly, this is the beginning of miracles Jesus did in Cana of Galilee. 
Well, I could tell the miracle of the last miracle that Jesus performed before the resurrection, the pre-resurrection miracle, the very last one. Uh, it was performed in the shadows of Gethsemane. And as you look at this picture here on the slide, uh, this was taken by my son. And there you can see the temple in the background when you're standing in the garden. Jesus kept this miracle for last. Not in a response to a cry for help or pity like so many of his miracles had been. Some troubled soul coming to him. No. This miracle was done by, in the shadow of the blow of an enemy. The Lord Jesus had said, Bless them that curse you and do good to them who hate you. And the Lord Jesus always lived his words. Here was a mob that was led by Judas, and their torches were dancing in the night. They broke through the gate of the garden, and they were seeking their prey. So facing the mob, Jesus said to them, Whom seek you? And they said, Jesus of Nazareth. And then Jesus responds, I am he. And the Roman soldiers fall back. And they suddenly they lose all their strength and they fall to the ground because the majesty of Messiah overcame them. So then they begin to recover themselves and they take hold of Jesus to arrest him. And Peter was so incensed, he drew his sword and he struck the high priest servant Malchus' ears and he was aiming for his head, but he chopped off Malchus' right ear. And Jesus, in his compassion, touched Malchus' ear and healed him. I think, well, what about these bookends of miracles should I talk about? Um, I could choose the miracle of the coin in the fish's mouth. Uh, when Peter put out his line off the shore of Capernaum, and he caught a fish, and the, he opened the fish's mouth, there was a shekel. And that's the amount that they needed to pay for the temple tax in Jerusalem. I could tell about the miracle of the Lord Jesus bringing to life his good friend Lazarus, who had been dead for ten days, for four days, excuse me. I could tell the miracle of that crippled man by the pool of Bethesda, who Jesus healed. I could tell the miracle about the healing of the ten lepers on an unknown road. Or I could tell the miracle of blind Bartimaeus in the city of Jericho and how he regained his sight because of Jesus' miracles. But I thought, no, I, I'm not going to speak on these miracles. I'm going to go back to the day that I left off with when I left you here in October, and I gave you the conversation of parables. And I'm going to go back to that very day. Do you remember that day, ladies? It was the busiest day in the ministry and life of Messiah Jesus. It was that day of the blasphemous accusation of the nation of Israel and how they rejected him after he had cast out a demon. Do you remember that story? Remember that day? It was also the day of the visit of his mothers and brothers to take him home. It was the very same day that the Lord Jesus left Peter's crowded house and he went to the shores of the Sea of Galilee and from the boat he gave the parables of the kingdom. So at the, toward the end of this day, the Lord Jesus says to his disciples, let us go over to the other side of the lake. Wait a minute. Wait a minute here. Did the disciples hear him correctly? To go over to the other 
side of the lake, the east side of the lake, the Decapolis, where only Gentiles lived. The Sea of Galilee had a Jewish and a Gentile side, and God-fearing Jews in Jesus' day would have nothing to do with the other side. Why? Well, because these are pagan cities. They're modern and they're vulgar and they're forbidden by Jewish law. These people on the other side were to be avoided at all costs because they had contact with tombs and idols and unclean animals, like pigs. The other side was a very dark place and it represented everything the Jews on the other side of the lake avoided. So why was Messiah telling them purposely to go to the other side of the lake, the very place they had been avoiding for their entire lives? The Decapolis lies to the east and south of the Sea of Galilee, and it was founded by Greek settlers uh, from Alexander the Great's empire. And Alexander's dream to Hellenize the entire world did not end with him. Uh, the Decapolis is mentioned only three times in the New Testament. And it's a compilation of ten Roman cities outside Jewish authority at that time. Cities like Sothophilus, uh, it's also referred to as Betchain, uh, we toured that city. Also cities like Hippos or Sesita, referred to by the Jews, which means horse. We toured that city as well. Also cities like um, Gadara, Philadelphia, and Damascus. And because the Decapolis was regarded as a center of Greek culture, the people built theaters and stadiums and gymnasiums because they loved power and they loved prestige, and they loved pleasure, and they loved wealth and fame and accomplishment. I'm wondering if this could be the setting for the parable of the prodigal son. Was the Lord Jesus thinking about the Decapolis when he shared that story? Well, the Decapolis was a place for wild living, and it was a place that had plenty of pigs that needed to be fed. And certainly the lifestyle fits the description of the parable of the prodigal son. You remember how that went. And not many days after, the younger son gathered all together, journeyed to a far country, and there wasted his possessions with prodigal living. There is a lot we do not know about the Decapolis, but there is enough we know to shed some light on Jesus' visits to the Decapolis. Remember, the Lord Jesus had come to seek and to save those who are lost. He said that he came to save the world, not to condemn it. And although Jesus did not focus his ministry on the Gentiles, he did not avoid the people living in spiritual darkness. He went to them. And he pierced their darkness with his light because Jesus Christ is the light of the world. He gave the message of light, the message of salvation. He gave them a message of hope in him. Now, the ancient city of Hippos 
is where the Lord Jesus and the disciples are headed. And it's the smallest of the ten Decapolis cities, and yet it's the most, one of the most significant as I see it. And as you approach this city with us as tourists, I hope you have good walking shoes on you. Because as you can see from the slide, you have a very steep climb to get to the city of Hippos. In fact, you're going to have to climb 1,148 feet to get to the top. It's above the shore of the Sea of Galilee, so when you're standing at Hippos, you can look down on the sea. It's a lovely place, and um, it's a very interesting place as well. But you want to make sure you stay on the sidewalk when you're walking up that steep hill to get to Hippos. Do you see the, that small yellow sign there that's hanging from the fence? That means that there's a minefield on the other side of the fence. And from 1948 to 1967, the spot where you're just standing right now as you're looking at this, that was the border between Israel and Syria. And as you can tell from the sign warning about landmines, it was not a friendly border. It still isn't. And as you're standing here, do you see the Golan Heights right there in the distance? There they are. When we finally did get to the top of Hippos, we saw its main street, beautifully designed by the Romans, because it has black basalt flagstone. It's arranged obliquely in a design so that wagon wheels won't get, their wagon wheel spokes won't get caught in the cracks. And Bible historians believe that the Lord Jesus walked this street when he was in this area. We walked this street as well. The picture here of my son, he's standing uh, there in front of the remains of the basilica, and this was actually what was referred to as a city hall in Hippos, where they did a lot of trading and other city affairs. But an earthquake in 363 AD destroyed this city, and it was never rebuilt. Wait a minute, what do I see in this, these pictures? Are there some clouds starting to form in the background? Is it getting dark? This is the middle of the day. The sun had just been out. Why is the sky changing such colors and it becoming so ominous looking? In my October message, I shared with you photos of Hippos, and I pointed out the ominous clouds that were forming in the distance when we were there. The sky was becoming dark, a dark gray, and and clouds were scuttling across the mountains as we could see that happening. And a slight breeze was starting to pick up as we're standing there, and, and we looked down and the water starting to churn. Is that thunder I hear in the distance? I remember I said to my husband. Yes, he said. I think a storm is approaching. I would have never have thought that we were going to be able to witness a storm on the Sea of Galilee. I was just thankful that I was standing above the Sea of Galilee and not on the Sea of Galilee. In fact, a young man who was standing next to me when he's watching all this take place, he said, do you want to go down and walk on the water? And I said, oh, no. I said, Jesus is not down on that water. I am not going down there. 
But I was thankful to the Lord, too, that I was able to witness this storm coming up because then I could share it with all of you. Because I can tell you, these things happen. And these storms come up very, very quickly. Uh, when we heard the thunder, then we started seeing lightning, and then the rain started coming down, all of us ran down that long hill, hightailed it down there, and, and was on, sat on the bus to wait it out. Some never ventured back up again. But after 15 minutes, the sun came out. The Gospels have retained descriptions of natural phenomena unique to the Sea of Galilee, especially the, like, the lake's sudden turn of temperature and, and changes of weather. And the Sea of Galilee is a perfect place for a perfect storm. And it's because of this. It's just this little bowl of water. And around this little bowl of water, it's surrounded by mountains and hills and very steep cliffs and valleys. And to this day, as we noted, winds come rushing down these mountains on both sides of the mountains, and it causes a tempest to come about very, very quickly. And there would be no way you could prepare for a storm on the Sea of Galilee, a sudden intrusion of trouble. Now, a similar storm came upon the disciples when they were crossing over to the other side, as Jesus told them to, and four or five of the disciples were, were fishermen, and they knew all about the Sea of Galilee. They knew the Sea of Galilee very well, and they knew about the storms that come up on the Sea of Galilee. And they knew that severe squalls can develop within minutes, with swells of waves reaching 20 feet high, and that you could die in the middle of the lake, you could drown and could never be found again because the middle of the lake is 150 feet deep. So they knew these stories. So where was Jesus when the storm came up and it was rolling in the ship? He was in the stern. He was fast asleep. He was asleep on a leather cushion of the steersman. And after an exhausting day of teaching, the rocking of the boat had lulled the Lord Jesus into a deep, sound sleep. This shows me the humanity of our Savior. Remember the Lord Jesus was the perfect God and the perfect man. And he was the perfect man so that he could identify with the things we go through. And the Lord Jesus understands he felt exhaustion. As a teacher, I know the exhaustion that comes from teaching. By the end of the day, I'm spent. Now, any of you who have been teachers, you know what I'm talking about. Whether you're teachers in a school or a college, or you're teachers in a Sunday school classroom, you're teachers at Bible school, you're teachers at camp, or you're teachers in Truth for Youth, wherever you are, you know that teaching just drains the energy from you because you're using so much energy and it's a drain on your person, not just physically, but it's a drain on you emotionally and mentally. And there are very few things in life, I believe, that will zap the energy from you, zap the life from you than public speaking. Because you're giving every part of you when you speak. And I am sure that the Lord Jesus was a dynamic speaker because the words that he spoke, they marveled at the words that came out of his mouth, Scripture says. 
And I'm sure that people came up to him afterwards after he had been speaking. They had a lot of questions for him. Rabbi, what do you, how do you interpret this passage of scripture? What do you think about this? I have this problem. How can you address it? So here on this particular day, the Lord Jesus was giving, giving, giving. And he probably could have slept standing up. So the Lord Jesus is at the back of the boat. He's fast asleep. And he's awakened by an accusatory question. Teacher, do you not care that we are perishing? All of a sudden, the disciples have become false prophets. They think they can predict the future. And the future looks bleak. The future looks bad. Everything bad's going to happen to us. We are going to perish in this storm. And too often, ladies, when we worry or we have some kind of issue that we're concerned about, we too can become certifiable false prophets. Because we can imagine the worst possible scenario help, help happening out there in our future. And I'm guilty as charged as well, so don't think that I'm just pointing my finger at you. It's coming right back at me. When we're not trusting the Lord, as the disciples were not doing in the ship, in the boat, we can imagine the worst possible scenarios, and that's exactly what the disciples did. Could you think of anything worse than saying this, Lord Jesus? We are perishing. Fear can immobilize us because it gets us to the place of what we think will happen to us. My problems are too big, and I am just too vulnerable, and I'm out of control, and I can't control this situation, and I have less power than I thought. Oh, I am perishing. The, this was the disciples' thought. Why? Because Jesus did not take away the storm immediately. The boat was filling with water. They couldn't bail it out fast enough. They, they were in danger of their loss of life as they saw it. So what did they do? They reached out to the Messiah. Because anxiety or stress, whatever you want to call it, is looking for the right person. Is there someone who can help me? Is there someone I can talk to? Is there someone I can lay my burden on? Is there somebody who can also fight this battle with me? And in this particular instance, they went to the right person, didn't they? They went to the Lord Jesus because they knew he was the only one who could help them in their time of need. You know this verse, what time I am afraid, I will trust in you. We like that verse. I like that verse. Because when we are anxious or stressed out or worried, we want somebody to help us. And we, like the disciples, have the opportunity of having the right person in our life. And that's the Lord Jesus. That was the lesson for the disciples that Jesus had for them in that storm. You can depend on me in any situation, as bad as it looks, and this looks bad to you, you can count on me. I will carry you through. I will get you through the storm. Now here were the disciples. They were in God's will. They were serving the Lord Jesus, and they found themselves in a very difficult situation. Sometimes we are in a storm, not because we are out of God's will, but because we are in God's will. 
So never judge a person based upon the storm in his or her life. The storm was there to teach the disciples dependence on the Messiah. And the storm in your life today, whatever that storm may be, is the same lesson. To teach you to depend on the Lord Jesus in every situation. Because yes, it's wonderful we can go to other people and help us, and that's what the Lord would want us to do. But ultimately, who is the one person who can really help us? Who can really get us through? And that's none other than our Savior, Jesus Christ, because he cares for us, and he wants to carry our burden. So the Lord Jesus did get up, and he rebuked the wind because he created it. And he spoke to the sea because he created it. And he said, be quiet, be still. Just like that. The sea was perfectly calm. It wasn't just a natural calm. It was a great calm, a sudden calm. And the raging waters ceased and stopped. And so sometimes the Lord Jesus does calm the storm. And sometimes he calms us. And he did both there with the disciples. And so the Lord Jesus then spoke to his disciples. And he asked two questions. Why are you so afraid? And how is it that you have no faith? Those two questions really get to me. I put them toward myself, the Lord Jesus saying that to me. At times when I'm not trusting him. Carol... Why are you so afraid? And how is it that you have no faith? See, the Lord Jesus knew every thought in their mind. He knew every fear that they had, just as he knows every, your every thought and your every fear. Fear is a reality. Fear is a part of life, and God knows this. And he is so kind because the most oft-repeated statement in the Word of God is very simple, and it's this. Fear not. It appears 365 times in the Scriptures, a fear not for every day of the year. So I say to the Lord, thank you, Father, for that. You knew that I needed that every day, didn't you? And you're not so busy. You're not just attending to the universe and the affairs of the world, but you're attending to my needs, my anxieties, my worries, my fears, because I have a personal relationship with you and you have a personal relationship with me and you care about me and you care about my fears and my anxieties and worries and that's why you said so lovingly, just give them to me. By faith, give them to me and let me take care of them for you. The Lord Jesus is so close and he speaks to the very details of your life. Now it's interesting that the disciples' fear changed, and they asked this question, who is this that even the wind and the waves obey him? Their fear had changed, but it wasn't a good way. It was a reverential fear to stand in awe of the majesty and the glory and the power of Messiah Jesus. Now, the Lord Jesus had told them, remember, let us go over to the other side. Maybe they forgot that in the middle of the sea. The Lord Jesus did not tell them 
let us go to the other side. But in the meantime, we're going to drown on our way over there. No, he didn't say that, did he? He said, let's go to the other side. Ladies, we are going to make it to the other side. While the journey to the other side may be difficult, it may be rough, Jesus never breaks a promise he has made. He will bring you safely to the other side. Now, there are two destinations, if you will, in life. There is the temporary and there's the permanent or the ultimate. The temporary is the trials that we're going through, the circumstances in life, our situations in life. You, th you fill in the blank. And the Lord Jesus has promised us to get us to the other side of that trial safely because he loves us and he cares for us. He's with us all the way. And he's also promised us as a child of God to get us to the permanent side of our eternal home because the gospel is the only message in the world that can powerfully bring a person to salvation and to everlasting safety in the presence of a holy and righteous and glorious God. So you too are going to get to the other side. He's going to bring you through your trials that you're going through, the storms that you're going through, and he's going to bring you safely to the other side. Do you believe that? Think of the words of Lord Jesus. Why are you so afraid? Do you not have faith? I will get you safely to the other side. As a child of God, he will bring us safely to the other side because absent from the body is present with the Lord. So what are the problems that are crashing down on you today? As these storms of life come into your life, and they will, and your heart turns on you like a traitor, and you fall for Satan's lies that God doesn't care for me, it happens to all of us, ladies, at times, no matter what it is, you can know, just like the disciples discovered, the Lord Jesus Christ is with me. He is with me by his omnipresence, and he's with me by his relational presence. He never leaves my side. And ladies, we are all in the same boat. We are all needy. We all got stuff going on in our lives. But the Lord Jesus says, let me calm your heart. Let me quiet your storm. I am with you. And remember that after the storm, the sun comes out. So let God's promises shine on your problems, wrote Corey Ten Boom. Does God perform miracles today? Yes, he absolutely does. God is free to perform miracles at any time according to his sovereign will and purposes. In your life, as a child of God, you will experience a miracle, or two, or maybe three. Because as a child of God, you belong to a miracle family. Isn't that wonderful to think about? These miracles can never be explained, but they're enough to change your life. Several years ago, you heard me sharing a message when the unexpected happens about my and my husband Barry's almost near-drowning experience in the Pacific Ocean off the coast of Mazatlan. We were caught in a riptide, and it was a miracle we were able to get out. We were tossed to and fro in that riptide. We could not get ourselves out, but God, by his mercy and grace, delivered us. And I'm sure that you have stories as well 
of God working in your life. Maybe it's, it was in an illness from which he delivered you. Maybe it was a cancer situation you were in. Maybe you were in an accident, such as we were. Or maybe it was a move that the Lord Jesus worked in your life, and you look back on that and you see it. Maybe it was in a job that you didn't see coming, and there it was, and, and, and it was a miracle that, that you were able to get that. These are things that defy explanation. And when you realize how God has worked in our life, you just stand amazed, and you, you can't explain it any other way, other than the only way you can explain it, it was a dunamis. <laughs> it was a miracle. It was God's power at work in my life. But as wonderful as these kinds of physical miracles are in our life, the greatest miracle of all is my salvation in Jesus Christ. You think about that. When I accepted Christ as my Savior, instantaneously, I became a child of God. The Holy Spirit indwelt me, his very presence in me, Christ in me. That I now became a royal part of the royal priesthood. I became a new creation in him. And the Holy Spirit was given not only to teach me more about him, the Lord Jesus Christ, but also to indwell me and comfort me and help me. And it's all by God's grace. It is the power of the gospel in my life that is the greatest of all miracles. It brings the greatest need and brings the greatest results. It's the forgiveness of my sins. That is the power of the gospel. Onto salvation. Sin is whatever violates the character of God, violates his holiness and his righteousness, his perfection, which means we're all separated from him. There is none that does good, no, not one, for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. This is literally the greatest dilemma in the universe. And what do we do about it? We can do nothing about it, but God can. And that's why Jesus Christ came to take away the penalty of our sins. Every Monday morning, even on holidays, East Masabi Sanitation truck comes by our house to pick up our garbage and dump it in the back. Those large orange garbage bags, oh, there they go. And the truck takes it away. And that nasty, stinky garbage is gone. It's not coming back. It's out of my house. And those old brown vegetables and smelly leftovers that were in the fridge and that other disgusting garbage I have that I'm not going to describe to you. I want you to think less of me. <laughs> it's all gone. <sighs> Taken away. And that's what God does with your sin. When you believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, he takes away your sin and your shame and your guilt because he nailed it to the cross. As far as the east is from the west, so far has he removed our transgressions or our sins from us. Jesus Christ is God's only provision for our sin. And through him alone, we can know him personally, be forgiven our sins because God demonstrates his own love for us that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. That's amazing. That God loves me that much. He proved his love for me at Calvary. In him we have redemption through his blood, even the forgiveness of sins according to the riches of his grace. 
And that is why, dear friends, we never should look back on our failures. We should never look back at all the mistakes that we've made because we've been cleansed and forgiven by the shed blood of Jesus Christ. He appeared on earth to take away our sins and he arose from the grave. Why? To give us hope of eternal life. Jesus Christ became sin for us, though, we knew, though he knew no sin, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. And it's not simply enough to know these things. It's to take by faith these things. For by grace we are saved through faith. It's not of ourselves. It's a gift of God. It's not a work that we should boast. And I have more good news to share with you, if that's not good enough. The Lord Jesus said these words to the disciples. Most certainly I tell you, he who believes in me, the works that I do, he will do also. And he will do greater works than these because I'm going to my father. And when the disciples heard this from the Lord Jesus, they might have thought, greater works than the miracles the Lord Jesus did? How can we do greater works than those? Not so much greater in quality, but certainly greater in scope and quantity. You just think about when you read in the book of Acts, one day Peter preached the gospel of Jesus Christ in Jerusalem on the southern steps of the temple and 3,000 people got saved. When the Lord Jesus was on earth, he was limited to the area of Israel, particularly Galilee. But when he died on the cross and he arose again, he was freed from the limitations and the Holy Spirit could mightily work anywhere, anytime, and every single abiding believer. That's you, dear ladies, if you know Jesus Christ as your Savior. Isn't that amazing? Are you getting a hold of this? Greater works than these I will do through you. It is not the believer herself, but it's God working in her to will and to do of his good pleasure in your life. Does that not excite you? These are moments that you need to absorb when you're down in the dumps when you feel like the kitchen sink is around your neck, when you can't see any hope in front of you, remind yourself of your salvation in Christ. Remind yourself of your position in Christ and remind yourself that greater works than these you shall do. The only way to explain it is by God's power and strength. So maybe you don't see seas parting today and you don't see fire coming down from heaven, but God still is at work in your life. He's at work in your circumstances. He's at work with the people in your life. So when you are in the storms of life and you have failed the test at times, like the disciples, and we do too at times, but you can be confident of this very thing that God who has begun a good work in you will complete it until the day of Jesus Christ. That puts a spring in my step when things look gloomy around me. You never know what the Lord Jesus Christ can do. So trust him, ladies. Faith in Christ, Jesus Christ, releases the power of God in your life. So in the darkest day, the darkest hour, you can still hope in the Lord in his unsearchable riches, his all-sufficient grace, and his inconquerable power. Well, I'm pleased to tell you that the disciples did get safely over to the other side, just as Jesus had promised. But now they were in Gentile territory, this was an excellent area, grazing area for swine. But in this area, demonics lived. 
and they lived in tombs of dead people's bones because people weren't buried outside cities and towns in this area because it was too far to carry the bodies. So they were buried closer to a location where the people were. But as soon as Jesus uh, landed on shore, a man came rushing to him who was possessed with demons. And this man had been handcuffed, and he, every time he broke those handcuffs, and he was, had supernatural strength, and he wailed constantly. He was self-destructive, aggressive, and he approached Messiah Jesus. The disciples stayed in the boat. <laughs> I'm sure they were terrified. And yet Jesus was not. And he approached them in calm and courage, unafraid. And the man recognized Jesus and he ran to him. And when he drew closer, the spiritual power and grace that always pervaded the personality of the Son of God quieted this man's spirit. <clears throat> and he fell down to his knees in reverence to the Messiah. And the demons immediately recognized uh, the Messiah and, and realized their power over him, his power over them. And one of the demons uh, was a spokesman. He yelled at the top of his lungs, What are we to do with you, Son of the Most High God? The demons recognized their ultimate doom in the lake of fire because they said, are you coming here to torment us before our time? <laughs> they knew that with all their combined physical and supernatural strength, they could never defeat the Son of God. In his presence, they were helpless. Now, they have faith, but they don't have saving faith. They believe in a future judgment. They know it's coming. Uh, even the demons believe and they tremble. So they begged him not to send him to the abyss which is a place in a larger place in the middle or center of the earth, uh, referred to in Sheol in Hebrew and Hades in Greek. And so the demon said, in God's name, don't torture us. So they were giving Jesus a command here, and so Jesus turned the tables and he asked them to reveal their names. What is your name? And the spokesman said, my name is Legion, for we are many. Now a legion was 6,000 men in a Roman army. So the number of demons in this man was numerous we don't know the exact number for sure however but this was the most powerful demon possessed man jesus had yet come in contact with and the demons knew very well that they were going to be cast out so they made a request hey see that herd of swine grazing over there let us go into them and jesus granted their request i'm not sure what his reason was but he, but they did but he did grant it. And the swine numbered about 2,000. And so the demons entered the swine. And the pigs rushed down that steep cliff and into the Sea of Galilee. And we learned on our tour that pigs don't naturally go down cliffs. The people in charge of feeding the swine fled and they informed the city and the country what had happened to the pigs and the demonic man. And so they came out to see for themselves and they could not believe that this man who had been crazy was now in his right mind, he was clothed, and he was calm. And then when they realized that they were going to have less possessions, less pigs, they asked the Lord Jesus to get out of the Decapolis region because they cared more for the pigs than the healing of the demonic man. So as Jesus was uh, getting ready to go into the boat, the man asked Jesus, may I go with you? He wanted to be a disciple of Yeshua. However, this man was a Gentile, and right now Messiah was not accepting Gentile disciples. 
But instead, the Lord Jesus had a ministry for him. He says, you go home, and you tell them what great things the Lord has done for you and how he had compassion on you. He encouraged this man to proclaim a message of forgiveness and redemption and mercy. Now, we'd expect this man to go back to his hometown of Gergaza, which is about two miles away. Or, no, actually, it was about a half a mile away. But instead, he became a missionary in the entire Decapolis area. He couldn't wait to tell another person about Jesus Christ, the Messiah who had broken the tyranny of Satan, and he set me free. I was in spiritual darkness, and now I'm in light because I met the Messiah and believed in him and trusted him. And look what he's done for me, and he can do the same for you. So he is spreading this message all around. And the people were amazed at this healed man of Gergaza. In fact, his testimony was so extensive that when Jesus returned to the Decapolis, 4,000 people greeted the Lord Jesus. And this is just counting the men, so there were many more because it was women and children as well. And when they became hungry, the Lord Jesus fed these 4,000 plus with seven loaves of bread, and seven is the ethnic number for Gentiles. And he also fed them with a few fish, and there were seven baskets of remains. Now the geography of forgiveness had extended to all shores of the Sea of Galilee and included all ethnic groups, the Jew first and also the Greek or the Gentile. In fact, history records that as a result of this one man's testimony, a large community of believers was established in the Decapolis area. He had a great influence, which had a great influence on the early church for many centuries. And when we were at the Hippos, we saw the Christian influence in that Decapolis city. As impactful as this first miracle was in Decapolis, there was an alarming thing that took place in Galilee. If someone would ask you, Name the three most important cities in Jesus' life and his ministry. What cities come to your mind? The three most important cities in Jesus' ministry. Thinking of Bethlehem, the city where he was born? Are you thinking of Nazareth, the city where he grew up? Are you thinking of Jerusalem, the place where he, uh, his death and his resurrection? Or perhaps you're thinking of Bethany, where uh, the Lord Jesus raised Lazarus from the dead? But none of these four cities made the list compiled by Matthew. Remember that Matthew was a tax collector in Capernaum, and he became a disciple of the Messiah Jesus, and he wrote the first book of the New Testament. And he says, I'll tell you the three most important cities. He says, these are they right here. He said, it's Chorazin, Bethsaida, and Capernaum. Why are those the three most important cities? Matthew tells us because most of Jesus' miracles were done here. These cities are not far apart. They're just about two and a half miles apart. It's a very small parcel of land. And these people in this area saw more of the Lord Jesus. They listened to his words. They were personally engaged with the Messiah. They witnessed his miracles. So with that in mind, name for me, please, one, just one of the miracles Jesus did in Chorazin. If you cannot, don't let it bother you because the Bible doesn't record any. It doesn't record any miracles that Jesus performed at Chorazin, a town of about 15 acres and I'd say 1,000 people. 
Jesus denounced these towns in which most of his miracles occurred because they all saw up close and personal his miraculous power, and yet many, most, refused to believe in Jesus as the Messiah. Had Matthew not recorded this statement, this one following statement Jesus made about Chorazin, we would know nothing about his ministry there. Listen to his words, the Lord Jesus' words. Woe to you, Chorazin. War to you, Bethsaida. If the miracles done in you had been done in Tyre and Zidon, they would have repented long ago in sackcloth and ashes. I'm telling you it will be more bearable for Tyre and Sidon on the day of judgment than for you. And you, Capernaum, you think you'll be carried up to heaven? No, you'll be brought down to Hades. If the miracles done in you had been done in Sodom, they would have repented of their rampant immorality, and the city would still be here. I'm telling you it will be more bearable for the people of Sodom on the day of judgment than for you. Now, how much we would want to eliminate or wish to eliminate the element of judgment from the message of the Messiah, it remains unalterably there. God certainly is long-suffering, no question about it. He is absolutely compassionate and kind and loving. Yet, we must not presume that the kindness and the long-suffering of the Lord is not there for the day of judgment will finally come. And that's why we have this verse, Behold, now is the accepted time. Behold, now is the day of salvation. Today, if you would tour these cities, you'd see that they are a testament to Jesus' curse on them. If you visited Chorazin, it's a fertile ground, but there are no people there. And the synagogue is in ruins. If you visited Bethsaida and Capernaum, it's the same can be said of these two cities. As we think of Jesus' miracles, uh, the Apostle John closes his book with these, with the, these two statements that I will share with you. Uh, in John 20, 30 through 31, he says, Therefore many other signs Jesus also performed in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book, but these have been written so that you might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you may have life in his name. There is power in the name of Jesus. In fact, there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name given under heaven among men whereby we must be saved. And then he closes and he says this. There are also many other things which Jesus did, which if they were written in detail, I suppose that even the whole world itself would not contain the books that would be written. When the gospel writers were inspired by the Holy Spirit to write the account of the life of the Messiah, none was able to include everything Yeshua said and done. So selective miracles were brought out due to space limitations because a book covering everything that the Messiah Jesus said and had done would be way too massive. It would be way too cumbersome for us to carry around in our Bibles. We couldn't do it. So it was limited. Our phones probably couldn't even include all the data that would have to be uploaded to it. So in, under God's sovereign direction, the writers had specific miracles that were included and teachings to accurately preserve the life, ministry, and truth claims of Jesus Christ for future generations. And this is probably ha has to be one of his most important truth claims. The Lord Jesus said this. He said, I am the way the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. 
whether you want to admit it or not. Jesus is the Messiah upon whom your eternal destiny rests. Sometimes, when doubts and fears assail you, take out your Bible and read it. And remind yourself, with God, all things are possible because I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. To think about this, the same power that was at work in Jesus Christ when he was on this earth performing the miracles that he did is the same power that resides in you through the power of the Holy Spirit. Allow his power as you trust him, as you walk by faith, as you lean not to your own understanding, but you lean on the promises of God and say, Father, I will trust you though I cannot see, though I am faced with adversity, I know your will is always best for me. I will trust when I cannot see. And that's a lesson you can take away from a conversation of parables. Dear Heavenly Father, oh my, there's so much here for us to take in. But I know, Father, that you are a God of power and might and strength, and you care for us, you love us with an everlasting love. And I know, Father, you will deliver us safely to the other side, the other side of our trials, our problems, our issues, our circumstances, and ultimately, Father, to the other side of eternity where we will see the Lord Jesus face to face one day. Thank you so much, Father, that you preserve these stories for us, these miracles that we could read about and we could just even see application in our own lives. So I'm just so grateful, Father, that uh, the women came out tonight, and I trust that uh, this word, your word, would work in their hearts because you desire to will and to do of your good pleasure in their lives. So thank you, Father, and we rejoice in Jesus Christ and our Savior, in whose name we pray, amen. Kristen, you can turn off the recording now because I have a few announcements I want to make. And here's the first one. If you are attending the Ladies' Bible Retreat at Chase on the Lake, March 7th through the 9th, um, you'll hear a continuation of the series, The Heart of Conversation, and there'll be three conversations that we're going to share at the retreat. And I'm going to begin with a conversation of compassion. Uh, we're going to sail back to, the, to Capernaum now uh, at the retreat, and there, when we get back to Capernaum, all of a sudden we're greeted. We're greeted by the ruler of the synagogue, and then as we're going to the, the ruler of the synagogue's house, Jairus' heart, a woman with an issue of blood stops us, so we will have that story. And then we're going to also have the story of um, the Good Samaritan. So we're going to travel to Jericho. We're going to go down to the Dead Sea, and I'm going to uh, give you some pieces of advice. Make sure that you bring goggles uh, when we go to the Dead Sea because you do not want to get salt water in your eyes. So don't forget that. And also I want you to bring good hiking shoes because we're going to have to go through the Judean wilderness and desert so you want to dress appropriately um, and then Faye is going to give a message on a conversation of companionship and then on Saturday morning I'm giving a conversation of comfort details and locations to follow I'm working on we're working on all these messages at this time and if you cannot attend the retreat uh, Heritage Trail has a retreat repeat 
and it's usually in spring, and I'm anticipating perhaps the first week in May, weekend in May, Saturday in May. Um, so you can hear these messages for the first time, and if you want to come again and hear them a second time, please join us. But next time we meet, Faye is the speaker, and she is speaking on a conversation of love. And she is going to take us to Jerusalem, and we're going to hear Peter's conversation when he denies the Lord Jesus, uh, and then he gives up on his life. So he heads back to the old trade of fishing, he goes back to the Sea of Galilee, and the Lord Jesus is there waiting for him because the Lord Jesus has a conversation with Peter, and it's going to be a conversation of love. So you'll want to join us on February 8th here at Heritage Trail for that event. Another announcement I have for you, remember the last time we met, uh, the question was raised, should we have these women's studies on Sundays after church rather than on Thursday nights? And many women said we would prefer Sundays, and we would like to have a little potluck luncheon either before or after I presented this to Pastor Gus. He also presented it to the board, and they were absolutely in support of it. If that's what the women think will work best for them, yes, you, you go for it. So I believe we'll start that in April um, because we had the retreat in March. So look for details to follow on that. Anything else? I'm going to stay up here with the microphone, and I'm going to ask uh, Faye if you could write down any prayer requests that you have right now because it would be great if we could pray together as women. Uh, I'll start with myself. <laughs> you can pray for me next weekend. I am 